This episode is brought to you by the generosity of our listeners. Thinking outside the box is not all it's cracked up to be. That when you have really creative people, they're going to produce the best output if you put tight boundaries on them. That's Nick Tassler, speaker, best-selling author, and global change management consultant on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. This is your show host, Larry Gates, along with Armin Asadi. And we are here to bring you yet another episode to put your faith to work and bring your bold ideas to life. This is the Bold Idea Podcast, and so we're glad you are with us. Armin, we have... Uh, one of your friends on the program today, a great guest. That's right. I just got to spend some time with him out in Washington, D.C. at the National Prayer Breakfast. And uh, this guy just really impressed me. So I was, I'm really excited to have him with us and just let him be him. I think you'll really enjoy this show that we have coming up for you. Nick Tasler is an internationally acclaimed thought leader. He's an organizational psychologist. Don't let that bother you because he's got a lot of fun stuff to say. <laughs> and he is the number one best-selling author of four really counterintuitive books on the art and science of making decisions and leading change. The Impulse Factor, Why Quitters Win, Domino, The Simplest Way to Inspire Change, and Ricochet, his latest book, What to Do When Change Happens. He has written for the Harvard Business Review, and his work has been covered by the New York Times, Bloomberg, Business Week, The Atlantic, New U.S. News and World Report, Financial Times, Huffington Post, on and on and on, and the Bold Idea Podcast. That's right. So, the most important part. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so we want to welcome to the program Nick Tesler. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here, guys. Oh, yeah. So good to have you. You know, you are a quite successful author. You speak around the world. And according to your website, you're helping teams and leaders adapt to change strategically and decisively. By the way, I love that, strategically and decisively, because I don't think we necessarily adapt to change that way. And of course, when we want to embrace a bold idea, that means having a lot of change. So we got to talk about all that. But for now, kind of how did you get into the role of what you're doing, Nick. How, tell us about your journey. Oh, boy, how much time do we have? No, just kidding. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I'm an organizational psychologist by training, uh, by trade and training, I guess. Um, and so I've studied, you know, basically psychology and organizations and business um, ever since I was an undergrad. And I started, uh, I started my career as a management consultant uh, at Anderson Consulting, now Accenture, um, and then I've kind of wound my way through different uh, consulting businesses and um, um, working for different corporations. And then uh, about 2008, uh, my first book was published. Uh, I was studying um, – I'd done a lot of research on decision-making. I was the director of research and development for a little little boutique consulting firm called Talent Smart based out in California. And um, uh, I was doing some research on decision-making. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. So, um, I started writing some articles. The articles got picked up by some bigger publications. And then um, then GE got a hold of it and they wanted me to work with some of their leaders around the world, um, their high potential leaders on, on this topic of decision making. And uh, so that's kind of what, what launched it all. And then eventually, you know, decision making sort of led into strategy um, and then decision-making and strategy sort of gave way to all of a sudden something happened about five years ago 
um, where I noticed it was probably happening for longer than that, but I'm a little slow, so it took me a while to catch on. Um, I noticed that uh, uh, all the all the clients were coming to me saying, "Yeah, we want you to come in and talk about you know making strategic decisions, thinking strategically, and acting decisively." See, because the thing is, we're going through a lot of change right now. And all of a sudden, like the light bulb went on and it was just like one after another, every single client, no matter what they wanted me to talk about, the, the conversation would always start with, we're going through a lot of change right now and dot, dot, dot. Um, and so that's kind of uh, the abbreviated version of uh, kind of how I, where I landed today. All right. Well, at some point in time, you had to do your own decision making as you were even writing about a decision making book and decided yeah. to go out on your own. So. Tell us about that thought process, because that had to be a little bit uh, a quite a shift for you, having worked with a lot of large corporations and consulting firms and then some boutique firms. Uh, what was it like to decide, well, I'm going to leave all that? Yeah, yeah. So it was uh, it was certainly a, a big decision. Um, but I'll tell you, part of the reason uh, why I began, why I was so interested in researching decision making to begin with um, has to do with my my personal history. Um, I, my family moved a lot when I was a kid, so uh, I I lived in uh, eleven different uh, eleven different homes before I was eighteen, and you know that's continued. Now I've lived in probably thirty five different homes uh, at the at the age of thirty nine. <laughs> You're a nomad um, now, right? <laughs> yes, uh, totally, exactly, exactly. I am a nomad, and I have uh, I have fought tooth and nail to bring my wife along on my nomadic adventures, and now she's a uh, She's a pseudo nomad herself these days. She's learning and, to uh, adapt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, uh, researching and writing about decision making was a little bit of uh, um, kind of our art slash business imitating life in my case, um, and and vice versa. Uh, because one of the things that I always uh, that I always found interesting, even before uh, I got into this as a career, is how is it that for some people they trace, you know, mental problems and, uh, you know, mental illnesses and hard times in their life back to the fact that, you know, they never really had a secure home. Um, and, and the, you know, things were always in flux and there was unstable and, and et cetera, et cetera. And yet you, you, and then I look at my life and I think I wouldn't have had it any other way. I got so many cool experiences. I is prepared me for this. It prepared me to, um, to, to deal with pretty much any change that, that comes my way. And then I would, I would meet other people, whether at client organizations or just, you know, people I went to school with. Um, and, and I would always notice this sort of, uh, this, this distinction and this paradox. And that's really what, what kind of sparked the interest in decision-making um, is why some people will make the decision to go do something crazy and new, right? To go follow this, uh, in your words, bold idea, and then what holds other people back. And um, so anyway, so my first book was actually called The Impulse Factor, and it was all about the fact that uh, there's there's a whole bunch of reasons from situational to genetic um, to upbringing and, and uh, uh, home life, parental influence, uh, that determine why most people are risk averse, right? Most people, three out of four, um, will not really be eager to pursue a bold idea. But then all of a sudden, you have one out of four people um, who, who jump in head first, you know, that they, they will not waste their time um, holding on to the, uh, the bird in the hand, and they will, they will dive head first into the bush looking for the two possible birds, 
Um, and so what is that difference? And then how does that play out in our lives, in our work, et cetera? You know, Nick, I suspect that you're right. About three quarters of people are not very risk tolerant and, 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 and about 25% probably are. That fits with my observation of human nature and people that I've been around. But tell me, is there something that stands out as maybe the thing that might make one person more risk tolerant than another? Sure. Well, there's a there's a lot of factors and and researchers from psychologists to geneticists to everybody in between is is still trying to figure out a, a kind of what are, what are the pieces of the puzzle. Um, but we know that there is almost certainly a genetic component that some people are just uh, biologically predisposed uh, to be more or less risk tolerant. Um, now I say that with a, with a huge caveat, uh, because, you know, anytime you start trying to tie a, a, a gene to a specific behavior, you're getting yourself in trouble because it's just way too complicated for that. But, um, you know, with that being said, there is, for example, one, one particular gene, uh, among many, most likely that, uh, that seems to be, you know, somewhere down the, down the trail of, of an answer. And uh, back in the 90s, researchers uncovered a link between this particular gene uh, that's a dopamine receptor gene that is found disproportionately in people that have uh, – they score high on measures of novelty seeking, so, right? They're seeking out new things, pursuing new things. Um, with, a, with a greater propensity than other people. And so anyway, the interesting thing about this particular dopamine receptor, this gene, is that it's also found, uh, it's about twice as common in kids and adults with attention deficit with hyperactivity disorder. Yes. All right. And there's hope. Yeah. <laughs> there's hope. There's hope. Well, sort of. <laughs> because <laughs> it's also found disproportionately in drug addicts and uh, oh, people that go. suffer from alcoholism. So, <laughs> well, and I was going to ask, <laughs> is it found disproportionately in entrepreneurs? Because a lot of the entrepreneurs I know are very ADD. Yeah. In, indeed it is. Indeed it is. And so, um, yeah, lots of entrepreneurial uh, risk-taking people. So, you know, it's kind of like the, the way that I, I described it in my research. We did a, a little bit of interesting research on our own on this. I developed a measure to to tell how impulsive you are. And it's not whether or not you have this gene, but, um, you know, similar to the measures that they were, that they were the psychological instruments they were using to connect to this gene. And, um, anyway, and it tells you how impulsive you are. And then we, we cross-referenced that with all these different measures of everything from job performance to life satisfaction, to overall quality of life, sense of purpose in life, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like the, the people that, uh, scored the lowest, um, it was sort of this very predictable, if they were really, really risk averse, they tended to not perform terribly high on job performance. They didn't have very um, elevated job titles. Um, and they were, you know, maybe a little bit happy with their life, but not terribly satisfied. And there was sort of this direct correlation. The, the more risk prone they were, um, the more highly they tended to score on all these different measures. But then it also it reached a point about you know three fourths of the way up the scale, um, where all of a sudden it's like the you know if you can imagine the the needle just kind of started going haywire. Um, so some people were were experiencing the pinnacle of existence, you know, super high performing in their job, uh, totally happy and satisfied with their life, really high quality of life. Um, and, the, and then other people that were also very risk prone were just in the absolute gutter of all those measures, terrible job performance, not happy with their life, no sense of purpose or meaning. Um, and so what you find out is like, 
um, the, the, the interesting thing is some people are more prone to uh, just going for broke. But the problem is that sometimes when you go for broke, you, are broke. you go broke. That's, that's <laughs> right. That's right. You know, there's a reason why we call it risk. And uh, some people it pays off and uh, they become superstar entrepreneurs and other people find themselves on skid row for long stretches of time. All right. Let me see if I understand this right. In your study, you found that people who are not risk tolerant at all, if you have a really low level of risk tolerance, by and large, it correlates to poor work performance. Is that what I heard? That, that's right. You know, and, and of course, there's exceptions. We're just talking about averages here. Yeah, yeah, but yes. right. Total, totally. If you just looked at it, there seems to be a correlation between work performance and a, and a low level of risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. And then what I'm hearing then is conversely, a high level of risk tolerance has people that are on both sides, both those people who are have made a, a low happiness index because they made a mess out of their lives, they're on the downside of the risk, and then you have those that perhaps have a higher uh, level of self-satisfaction because they've been able to somehow be more successful. Is that what I'm hearing? That, that's exactly right. right? They've taken risks that have paid off, and then, of course, uh, the, next, the next logical question not to steal your thunder. Is that, Please do. So, <laughs> so, so what makes the difference, right? What is it that, that can tell us um, that determines where, why some of these people um, are, are living the, the peak of existence and why other people are, are scraping the gutters? Um, and drum roll, please. We yep, don't know. We don't, you know, we've got, we've got some ideas. Okay. Um, that was anti-climatic <laughs> after a drum roll. I know. Drop the mic right there. We got some ideas. We have some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> if I, I want to set you up for some huge revelation and then equivocate as much as possible. <laughs> Love it. So thanks for being uh, on the show, Nick. And <laughs> 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 sorry, sorry. Carry on. Uh, so, so anyway, I mean, we do have some some ideas, right? And and what we find is, well, what I find is interesting now is when I was doing all this research, it was about 15 years ago. Uh, my book came out. The this first book that I'm talking about. There've been three others since, but um, that came out about about 10 years ago. And so most of the research was done, you know, a decade and a half ago. And, and a lot of the things that we're now finding out about creativity and innovation research is um, lo and behold, thinking outside the box is not all it's cracked up to be. That when you have really creative people, they're going to make the they're going to produce the best output if you put tight boundaries on them, um, which flies in the face of a lot of what people think when they talk about you know dealing creatively with change and things happen and we got to start thinking outside the box. And while there's some truth to that. When you take a really impulsive, risk-prone, often creative person, they need boundaries. They need tight boundaries so they can they can funnel, they can channel um, that 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 risk tolerance into something productive instead of just wildly spraying it all over the world. So, what are some of those boundaries? Give some examples of ways a creative person might need to be bounded in order to become more effective. Yeah, so Larry can manage me. Better. Yeah, well, or, <laughs> I'm thinking more selfishly than that. Okay, well, so, so we got Armin on here. I'm going to give you a real one of my favorite examples. Um, no, no, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> you actually had my full attention. I was like, yeah, I was oh like, man, you read me. I was leaning in on no, that no. one. 
Yeah. No, but there, there, there was one um, that I, I thought um, anecdotally was really interesting. So I actually researched the real life story of, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Jack Kerouac's book on the road, you know, all of Jack Kerouac's novels were, were semi-autobiographical. Um, and his main character in his most successful book was just this like, you know, wildly zest for life kind of guy who, by the way, ended up dying at age 40 or so when he um, fell asleep drunk and died of hypothermia um, out on a railroad track somewhere. But in the meantime, he was this really talented writer and just like this people that just um, people were just magnetically drawn to him. And but he was, you know, a really talented writer and hanging out with all these uh, what would eventually become famous novelists and poets of that generation. But he never produced anything. His most uh, and mostly because he was just too all over the map. But the one time in his life when he actually produced what Kerouac called the, the finest piece of literature in, in American history was when he was in jail. Um, he <laughs> pushed the boundary once too far. Um, I don't remember exactly what he had done, but he had to spend like six months locked up. And so here he is in this prison cell and he just unleashed this, this flurry of creative output because he was bounded for a change. And so, um, he just had this, these, these um, uh, you know, like I said, it was, it was channeled <laughs> so for a change. We got to put our mean in jail. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. He's been there. I don't think he was any more creative. Right, right. So, okay. So now, um, taking the penal system out of the equation, what else can we do? Right? Yeah, please. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, so, uh, so one of the things is like, okay, so if you take a really kind of pedestrian mundane example is, you know, if you're managing a group of creative people, um, everyone managers these days, I find are, are so averse to, they're so frightened of being called a micromanager that they give, uh, very little direction, very, you know, they don't give enough boundaries cause they don't want to be the one standing in the way of innovation and creativity and et cetera, et cetera. And again, there might be some truth to that, but I think the pendulum has swung too far. Like you need to give the people around you, whether it's your kids you need to give them a routine, a bedtime routine, a snack routine, an eating routine, as much as they fight it and they hate it, or whether it's you know people at work, a team at work. You need to be very clear about this is the, the direction that our team is going in the next six months, right? And be specific. We're not going in 100 directions. We're going in one direction, and I need all your efforts focused in that direction. So narrow okay? the options. Narrow the options, I mean, dramatically to the point where it hurts. Okay. If, if people aren't throwing a fit, you haven't narrowed them enough. All right. So let's, okay. let's, let's take this down to a personal level because yeah. for those of us who consider ourselves outside the bank box thinkers, <laughs> I was going to say outside the bank thinkers and that's probably true <laughs> for, for many we're back, virus now profil- we're back to the penal system. Exactly. Back in the- <laughs> outside the box thinkers. Um, who, who, you know, kind of relish in that, or maybe we want to be more outside the box thinkers. How do we self constrain ourselves to become yeah. even more effective in our creativity? So, so there's a, there's a lot of small things. I mean, one, one of the things I found that was interesting, um, when I, when I was researching, uh, people with, uh, ADHD, um, number one, so one of, one of the foremost experts on, on treating people with attention deficit disorders, um, he gives this list of like 48 things you can do. And number one on the list, marry the right person. 
Um, so what you find <laughs> is in. <laughs> right, right. So sorry if it's too late. But, no, no, we're good. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. So what you find is is in in successful, um, creative, risk taking people, you often find sort of a, a an opposite, if not a polar opposite, in their spouse. And a lot of times, that's just like a, a natural, um, healthy, uh, healthy connection. It's like we almost intuitively know what's good for yeah. us. Um, you know and I know that's we, true. And you know how we that? describe that here, Nick, in our family, Anna says, Larry, you're the kite. I'm the string, you know, and, <laughs> and a kite's not very interesting unless it can get in the air. And a string is terribly boring if it's lying on the ground. So, right. you know, you need that's both right. yeah. the tension to hold it to keep you to the earth and also, mm-hmm. and to, to get you, give you flight. Yeah. Yeah. So. No, that's a that's a great analogy. Yeah, to keep you grounded, like that's exactly. literally what you need. Yeah. And you know, and so and so, but but at the same time, you know, she probably appreciates that you provide a little a little levity, a little bit more big picture. Um, her life has been more interesting because <laughs> well, you're she will kid. say her life has been more interesting for sure. <laughs> is, it, is that true? I, I mean, well, you, yeah, you I call think her she would say that. I, you know, that? getting back to your earlier comment about. Um, uh, you know, genetic stuff. I'm sure she would also like to know if she could biohack down some of the risk tolerance that I have. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's that's like one of the great examples. And I think if you extrapolate out from beyond marriage, you can say a business partner. Um, you know, you, you need somebody who's not exactly like you, right? If you're Steve Jobs, you need your Steve Wozniak. If you're Bill Gates, you need your Paul Allen. Like if you're going to be big picture, big picture visionary guy, um, you need somebody who's going to actually like you know get things done and make sure that we we produce something maybe on time every now and then. Um, and so you know, and we can find that in in every kind of work and living situation. Well, that sounds like your next book if you haven't written it already, Nick. What was the title? Did you come up with it already? Yeah, getting out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> and putting yourself back in jail with your relationships whatever <laughs> finding your cellmate there you go that's yeah, there you go. oh my goodness yeah. okay go wrong, <laughs> uh, so let's talk yeah, so, about let's talk yeah. about the other end of the spectrum all right so you've you've said we should put some constraints on it what i'm hearing is if you have a high creative outlet you're high risk profile, high risk tolerant person and, and, and very creative. It's best to align yourself with somebody who isn't. They help you see things from a different perspective. That's the the thinking there, right? Whether it's a spouse or a business partner, or maybe even somebody you can have an accountability relationship with to do that. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Okay. So, so, so look at the other side now for a second with us. And, and, and if you're not if you don't have a high risk tolerance profile, I mean, apart from biohacking, what, what do you suggest for somebody who isn't very risk tolerant, how do they go about increasing their level of risk in a, in the words that you use, a strategic and decisive way? So um, basically the, the, the best piece of advice is the same. Find your opposite. Okay. What I call uh, consult an anti-you and um, trademark Nick Tassler. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's right. Um, no, but it, but but it really is. Uh, the the research uh, supports this. Research in behavioral econo- uh, economics and um, psychologists is like one part that they that they all kind of converge on is um, 
so we all know in, in the in the last ten years or so, behavioral economy, e- economics has been um, you know it's been all the rage. Like look at how all the ways in which people are stupid, right? Make these dumb decisions, and we do this. You know, we 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 spend too much. We don't know what's good for us. We eat too much. Whatever. Blah 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 blah. Right. Um, but at the same time, we also psychologists have uncovered about five or six very proven, predictable, empirically validated ways um, to protect ourselves uh, from these uh, from these irrational quirks. In which case, if you're too risk uh, uh, risk averse, you know it'll push your boundaries a little bit and help you seize more opportunities. Or if you're too risk prone, it'll it'll rein you in a little bit. You know it'll be your string. And and they're all things like consider the opposite, take an outsider's perspective. Um, pretend that a friend came to you with this choice. What advice would you give back to them? Actually get a second opinion. And I've thrown all these things into a catch-all term that I simply call consult an anti-you. And it's just this quick rule of thumb that every person, whether you're highly risk-prone or highly risk-averse, can use every time they're making a decision, but especially for the big decisions, um, to make sure that they're, you know, that they're not leaving opportunities on the table for fulfillment, for better performance in life and work, um, and then also to make sure that the, the highly risk-prone people aren't going off the rails and, and jumping off the cliff. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, I mean, this is probably a good time to take a pause from this episode and thank our listeners who've supported the Bold Idea Podcast. You are the reason we exist. This is a nonprofit. That means we don't make profit off of doing this. This costs money. So if you're the people out there that are supporting us and donating to us, you're the reason that we've been able to do this for over a year. And we'd love to be able to do this for another year or two and bring on more amazing guests. So we would love your support. If you feel so led, just go to boldideapodcast.com forward slash donate. And thank you again. So let's talk about the matters of faith for a minute. Do you find that people who are faithful people, believing in an impossible God to do impossible things, do you find that they're more or less risk tolerant? Or do you think, does belief matter here? Uh, That's a great question. Um, And that's something that I've thought a lot about. And I have a couple of answers. Okay, so uh, I, I think as a rule... And I'm trying to think whether I'm just making this up or whether there is actually research to support this. I think there is, but don't quote me. Um, I believe that people who score higher on measures of religiosity tend to be more risk averse. Okay. Now, what we should know here is that religiosity is not exactly the same thing as, you know, picking up your cross and following Jesus. Okay. That means it's really important to me to go to church every Sunday, to be on time to um, to go through the motions of of religion, um, which you know it doesn't mean you, you're not faithful, but it's not necessarily the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Can we agree to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, so when looked at from that regard, you would say, well, people of faith are. Um, I think if so, for instance, if I were a secular researcher and I looked at this big set of data, hundreds of thousands of people, and and my measure of faith-based people were whether or not they go to church. Um, I would say people who are faith-based are, are risk averse. 
However, okay, those of us who will take a more nuanced approach to that and say people that truly believe that A, a God exists and that a God loves them um, and that essentially uh, uh, you know, this God has our back in, and are walking by faith in, instead of by sight – um, you would say they're, they are most likely going to be exposing themselves to risks that other people wouldn't. And that seems to be what you would expect. I'm just wondering if there's any evidence of that. Uh, again, I, I think, um, the research that I have looked at is, um, it's convoluted because much of the research has been, has, has been done, um, you know, kind of for in the secular world where they, where they equate faith-based with religiosity yeah, and measures right. of religiosity. So it's too are hard different. to parse the data to figure out the answer to that question. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that no one has done it. Um, I forget. Uh, it, it's possible that, that, that um, uh, George Barna, um, you guys familiar with George Barna? Sure. Definitely. Okay. Right. So I believe that, that his group has, has done some research on this, but I, I'm, I don't know it well enough to quote it. Well, if you were thinking about this as as a faith-based person that you are, what are some of the things that you think about personally as to whether you're taking on an appropriate level of risk and trusting God, or maybe you've stepped over the line in terms of pursuing something that might just be for your own curiosity or interest or itch or whatever you might want to call it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, let's face it. There's a lot gray there. Right. Uh -huh, <laughs> I mean, right. the, the, the boundary is not clear. Um, so I, you know, again, I think it kind of comes back to, um, you know, you, you have this vision, um, that you maybe believe, uh, has, has come from God, uh, whatever that means to you, uh, that, that God has spoken to you in, in some way. Um, and so you're, you're, you're going after it. I think you kind of have to go back to, well, what do we know? What do I know about God? Okay. So for example, um, I would say God, uh, God is, is the God of love, right? What are, what are the, the, um, the greatest, the greatest commandments? Okay. Mm -hmm. Love God, lo love your neighbor essentially, right? Love people. So if I'm doing something, like if I'm really going out and I'm, I'm pursuing this thing that I think is from God, but the end goal it's just that I make a lot of money so I can join a nicer country club and um, drive a nicer car and live in a bigger house. In my mind, that doesn't necessarily align with what I know about God. Mm -hmm. So I have to I have to check myself. OK, um, now, if I want to be successful um, in my work and in my business, because that gives me resources to spread even more love to more people um, and to, you know, kind of do these things that are, uh, that are valuable, um, for my neighbors, for God, uh, then I feel like I'm on the right path, but, you know, it's kind of like, like checking, uh, uh, I, I don't know. Checking you know, your motivations there for that. Yeah. Checking your motivations. Exactly. And, and of course there's a, you know, there's a little bit of overlap. I think this, this one time I, um, so when I was researching one of my books, one of my favorite examples of this, by the way, in the faith arena is, is, uh, St. Francis of, of Assisi. Okay. Um, and I don't know how familiar you guys are with, with St. Francis, but, um, so he's this, uh, I believe 14th century, um, guy in Italy 
and he's very much a, a person of the world. He he's you know he starts out his young adulthood. He wants to be a knight to win glory on the battlefield, and then he's then he kind of becomes like a playboy, um, and he kind of comes from a wealthy merchant family, and et cetera, et cetera. And then and then he basically has this, and, and so he's he's very impulsive. Like he almost dies on the battlefield. Um, he gets sick, you know, and he spends all his parents' money, and and he's extremely impulsive. And then he has this conversion experience, and and um, and he totally shifts gears and he becomes like this this monk um who who is not not interested in 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 necessarily even um starting his own monastic order or rising in power or or authority in the church like like the church uh the roman catholic church at the time they they had to like beg him to to be a part of the church okay he was solely interested in doing what jesus would want him to do and that meant taking care of lepers and you know, taking a vow of poverty and living basically like John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I what I think is interesting about that is like the, the juxtaposition of the former saint beca- or the former sinner um, becomes like this uh, this prime example of of you know sainthood, however you define that. Yeah, and in his case of complete austerity, um, tell me about or tell us about your book. You've got a new book coming out, Ricochet. What's that all about? Yeah, yeah. So it's already out, um, and it's about uh, well, the subtitle kind of says it all. It's uh, what to do when change happens to you. Okay, so so what is that about? Well, the book I had written prior to that uh, is called Domino: The Simplest Way to Inspire Change, and that was really all about you know people that are uh, leaders that are leading any kind of a team, whether that's you know your your uh, uh, parent teacher association, a uh, you know a group of volunteer group of five people or, you know, a a CEO of a fortune 500 corporation, you've got this need for change and you somehow need to get other people to, to go along with it. Okay. That's what Domino was about. But as, as that, as that book started getting out in circulation and I was being asked to come and work with people on that, um, the, one of the responses, one of the things I had noticed is people would say, yeah, that's a challenge for us, but you know, um, one of the other things that we need our leaders to do before they can do that piece is they have to get used to the fact that change is happening to them mm. and they need to wrap their heads around that um, and just deal with the fact that whether you like it or not, this change is happening and you have to figure out a way to deal with it. Not even because the organization is saying so, the market is saying so, the industry is saying so, and we don't have a say in that. Yeah, change, so, change or be changed, right? Yeah, yeah. So ricochet is kind of like the other side of the change equation, not necessarily leading change, but dealing with the fact that change is happening to you um, in your work and then also in your life. You know, maybe you're going, maybe your marriage fell apart. Maybe um, you've dealt with a, uh, the illness of a, of a close family member, maybe even the death of, of someone close to you. And so it's like, how do you um, how do you adapt to those circumstances that you didn't choose and yet here you are in the midst of them? Well, it's such a narrow audience. I'm sure most people can't relate to <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> Everybody just gives me blank stares. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly, right? I can't identify with all that stuff. <laughs> how can our listeners find out more about you, Nick? Uh, the best place is just to go to nicktassler.com, N-I-C-K, T like Tom, A-S like Sam, L-E-R.com. That's great, Nick. So we're going to have that link in our show notes as well. But tell us, Nick, before we go, what is your next bold idea? Well, 
Interestingly enough, and I think this is probably the first time I've ever said this publicly, uh, my next bold idea will be the first time uh, I'm, I'm thinking about a more faith-based book, actually, um, that's going to address the questions that, uh, that, that you raised here just, uh, just a few minutes ago. You heard so, it here first, folks. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, um, it, it's, it's frightened me for a long time. You know, I've just, I've, I've stayed pretty secular in my, my public persona. And so for me, this is a, this is a bold move, a big jump because, uh, I've not been very public about my faith, um, in the past. And I'm, I don't know, feeling like maybe it's time. Well, we had a prior guest on our show that made the same jump. Elizabeth Saunders uh, wrote as a, a time management guru and wrote one about uh, time, divine time management. So uh, there, there are others that have taken that same step, Nick. So we'll be praying about your new new venture, your new bold idea. And just want to thank you for being on the show. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, likewise, likewise. All right, Nick, we will talk soon and hopefully co-author a book together. <laughs> in <Perfect. prison. laughs> Not in prison. You need a constraint. Yeah. <laughs> Take care of it. Well, Armin, fun to fun to meet and talk to Nick Tassler. Yeah, he's even more amazing in person. He's just such a I, I mean, when I, when I when I read about him, I was like, okay, he's gonna be this really uptight guy because he's, you know, Harvard Business Review and all this stuff, and then I meet him, he's just he's just the most laid back, humble, personable guy you'll ever meet. Yeah, well, I could tell just from our conversation before and <laughs> during the program, and uh, and of course even afterwards, it's just a real one of the guys you just like to kick around with. I think. Oh, you know, for just, sure. Just have some fun. Well, what the funny thing is, I don't know if a lot of people know this about him. He was telling me is uh, he used to be a beach bum and a surfer, and he still likes to surf, and that's part of the reason they're in Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You mentioned, uh, and I don't think our audience know that until just now that he recently moved back to uh, well not back but he's he's been in puerto rico before right yeah. and then he's just moved back right uh and uh so uh that's and, he, and you said he doesn't know a lick of spanish or? I, I don't i don't think so because that was one of their prerequisites when they were looking for a place to move to they said uh it has to be a brand new culture and we can't know their language see now <laughs> now if that isn't a high risk profile kind of outside the box thinking you know put right. yourself into a high neural net learning environment. And frankly, that's one of the things that I took away from the episode is that, you know, if we want to really stay in tune with having a bold idea, we need to put ourselves in a disposition where we're likely to get it. That's right. And that, that does mean we need to, you know, as he said, if you have a low risk tolerance, find yourself around those that do. <laughs> and perhaps if you're like Armin and I, and you have higher <laughs> risk prof profile tolerances, you know, find some people who are strings in your life yeah. and can kind of bring you back down to orbit. That's right. Well, it, the funny thing is, is I, I when he was railing off these uh, statistics in his research, I, I in the back of my head, I'm thinking you're geeking out right now because it yeah. aligns with what you've done and even uh, what you're trying to figure out what to write about in your own book. Oh, in my own book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just, um, I, I always have an interest and fascination with why people take risk. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm just trying to discover the, <laughs> my own navel gazing here as to why I've taken some of the risks that I have. And one of the things that we didn't talk about in, in this episode, and maybe something for a future episode, Armin, is, is how does uh, someone's risk profile affect the people around them? Oh, sure. You know, people that have low, uh, really low risk profiles and play it safe, um, you know, have a different um, uh, effect 
perhaps on those around them, their family most of all, than those that have a high profile and, sure. and risk. And maybe it's across the board because it depends about how those risks turn out for them. But, um, you know, I think that it does create a little bit of a culture of that. And you saw that in what he described. You know, he said his family moved around 11 times, was it? In, uh, by the time in, he was 18. By the time he was 18. Yeah. And he himself has moved, what, 34 times now? You know, yeah. now. So that's, you know, he's, he's tripling the output <laughs> of, his, of his early years, right, you know. Yeah. And uh, that's a lot of change. Yeah. And I, and, and I love what he's doing right now in terms of just the navigating this change management uh, sphere of things is that he's even his research is even pointing it to things that a lot of people have seen as a limitation, but he's able to show that, no, your limitation might actually be the thing that allows you to take the risks to be more effective at your work and your job and your business and whatever it is that you're doing. And I, and I love the fact that He's a- able to just connect so many dots. And I was even thinking about the comfort zone episode that we did, right? And just the way he's talking about finding the anti-you. What a, what right. what better way for you to be out of your comfort zone than finding the antithesis as to who you are when exactly. you're taking a chance or taking a risk? Yeah, exactly. It was interesting how he described people that he starts talking to in corporations. And I've heard this myself as I've gone into companies. Is just we're in such a midst of change right now. And they almost say it as if that's like revelatory, you know, like, we're, we're doing something that nobody else has done, or, you know, we just can't imagine doing anything more. And I think the idea is that's kind of when you need to embrace some new ways of thinking about it. Like he said, putting some of these boundaries in place, you know, putting yourself really in prison, you know, (laughs) and in a, in a way that says we've got some constraints. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's an important concept for those of us who want to be even more creative in our lives to realize that creativity is not tied to openness in the frontier. Right. It's tied to knowing what the range is, the boundaries, where the where you're roped off, because otherwise you will go anywhere. Right. And you'll hop, skip, and jump all over the place. And right. that's not that's Brownian motion. That isn't a, you know focused energy. Right. Well, every time I hear prison, I just start looking for exits. So. Yes. <laughs> so listen, our audience, you may have, you may not have listened to every episode of the bold idea podcast. So you're wondering, what are we talking about with Armin? He said, he's been there, done that. We make these jokes with him about being in prison. I would just invite you to go back to episode one, where you're going to hear about Armin's story. And uh, when you do, I think you'll understand why we're saying all this. We yeah. won't repeat it here, but it's just a worth a listen. And you'll know why, why Armin has such affection for <laughs> the prison system. I like my freedom. It's a great thing. <laughs> it is a great thing. <laughs> well, let's see. Anything else, Armin? That no, should- I just really love Nick. And uh, I meet a lot of guys who are in Nick's position who work with so many corporations. But it's rarely I, I meet them where I just think, man, there's I can't think of an organization that he will not be able to add value to. The, the amount of research that he's done, the amount of corporations that he's been involved with, the amount of thought that he's put into the work that he's done, and the amount of phenomenal feedback that he's gotten. I mean, it, it, it's... He's just one of those one of the one of the kind guys that no matter what corporation you're a part of, this guy is worth bringing in because he's just he just kills it everywhere he goes. And just being with him and listening to him talk, I mean, he it's whether he's on stage or sitting next to you, it just sounds like he's having a conversation with you. He's just a killer. I love him. Yeah, well, he's uh, he's definitely a dynamic guy, and I think there's a lot of personal application of the principles that he shares for leaders as well for yeah. us to digest. 
Well, he's got a number of books that are out, and and he has made it possible for uh, Bold Idea listeners, if you go and subscribe to his newsletter, he will send you, now get this, the entire audiobook of his latest book, Ricochet. And when it comes out next month, the audiobook's coming out next month, Nick's put us on notice. That's when he's going to have it ready. <laughs> and when that's ready, he's going to send that to anybody who's signed up for his newsletter. So you want to be sure to do that. Now, the way you can find that quite easily is just go to our show notes, boldideapodcast.com slash 58. You'll find the links to all of that there on our show notes, but also you'll find a comment field where you can leave a comment about the show or any ideas that you might have. Well, I'd be interested to know how have you found yourself helped by constraints and what ways do you constrain yourself in your thinking? Think about that. How do you find constraints help you in being more creative? And then leave us a comment about that on our on our uh, show notes at boldideapodcast.com slash 58 or call our show line at 612-568-IDEA, 612-568-4332. Well, that's it for this week. And until next week, this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi Saying so long. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.